Hello and welcome to Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack. There's a new book of political alternative histories out called Prime Minister Preeti and Other Things That Never Happened. And as one of its editors is a Liberal Democrat, who better to have back on this show than that very editor himself, Duncan Brack. Welcome back, Duncan. Thank you, Mark. Good to be with you again. Not talking about dead Liberal <laughs> leaders this time, but hypotheticals about people both living and dead. So let's just start with the obvious question. What is the book? Is it is it Pretty Patel's political manifesto for why she should be prime minister? <laughs> Not at all, no. It is the fifth book that um, myself and Ian Dale, or or on one occasion just me, um, have produced um, going back to about, I think about 2001, of political counterfactuals, political what-ifs. Um, so our first book was called Prime Minister Portillo and Other Things That Never Happened. Um, as you might remember, Michael Portillo, the rising hope of the Conservative Party, uh, lost his seat rather dramatically in the 1997 election to Labour. Um, but the, uh, the sort of lead chapter in that book looked at what would have happened if he'd saved it and then gone on to be leader of the Conservative Party. So um, they proved sort of fairly popular. So we've published, as I said, this is the fifth book. Um, and um, we have 23 different chapters by different authors, all about political counterfactuals, things that might have happened differently if something had happened, um, not as it did in history. And chapter 12 in this one, I think, is your <clears throat> absolutely sort of classic example of what makes for a great political counterfactual, which is titled, what if Eric Joyce had pulled his punches in 2012? Appropriate for chapter number 12. Um, and it takes what is apparently a relatively minor, uh, or not quite irrelevant, but certainly not of wider significance event in which a, somebody throws a punch and spins from it a huge story about British politics being completely different as a result, which is almost your classic political counterfactual, because there is logic in the sequence of events, but there's also a sense of fun drama in how you can go from one inconsequential event to the whole country having a completely different future. Yes, absolutely. It is. It's one of my favourite ones, I think, and it's a it's a classic one there. So um, your listeners might remember Eric Joyce was a Labour MP, Labour MP for Falkirk, who was once thought of a former army officer. She was once thought of as a, a possible um, Labour sort of senior figure, maybe not leader, but um, definitely somebody who had a bright future. But by then was succumbing to alcoholism. And in reality, got into a fight in one of the House of Commons bars, um, attacked various Tory MPs and Tory uh, researchers, and in the end, the police were involved, and um, he resigned his seat, and um, uh, his basically his political future was over. It's a rather sad story for him. And so far, up to that point, that sounds like a relatively typical story that has happened dozens of times in British politics. Uh, and you know, you sort of think, well, okay, something of significance to him and his family, and maybe to the person he punched. But so what? However, the chapter <laughs> then goes on. Absolutely. So the chapter assumes that well, what happened in reality then was that there was a big um, controversy and scandal about the uh, the reselection procedure for a replacement candidate in Falkirk and the Labour Party. And there were allegations of, I think it was Unite the Union um, rigging the contest and signing up lots of their members, possibly without their knowledge as Labour members, so they could vote in the selection. So as a result of that, Ed Miliband, who's Labour leader at the time, commissioned a report into reforms, possible reforms of the um, 
not just the uh, selection process, but also the leadership process for uh, MP uh, for Labour leaders. <clears throat> and in the end, as you remember, ended up reforming the system to basically introduce something quite close to one member, one vote. Um, which, of course, in 2015, after Miliband had stood down after losing the 2015 election, led to Jeremy Corbyn winning um, because you had a you had much weaker control before that. It was an electoral college, and you had a much greater say over the uh, election of the leader from Labour MPs and MEPs and the unions. Of course, that's all diluted in 2015. Um, so Corbyn gets in this great sort of sweep of grassroots support, which arguably he wouldn't have done. Um, so in the counterfactual chapter, um, Joyce thinks about going for one more drink and then decides, look, no, I've just had enough. Um, this is this is the you know, the wrong path to follow. I'm going to start sobering up and try and be sensible. So he avoids the bar, goes home to his hotel, doesn't get into a fight, doesn't um, uh, end up getting arrested and uh, resigning. And uh, Ed Miliband never reforms the Labour selection process for MPs or the Labour leadership campaign. Uh, he still loses that, sorry, the uh, Labour leadership election system. So he still loses the election in 2015. Um, but Yvette Cooper then wins the leadership election that follows instead of Jeremy Corbyn and proves to be a far more effective uh, Labour leader. Now, that's no great stretch of the imagination okay. uh, required there. Um, but most importantly here, um, she proves a far more effective leader of the Remain campaign in the Brexit referendum. And again, not much stretch of the imagination required there. I mean, Corbyn was just basically absent for most of the Brexit campaign. So Remain ends up winning. Uh, in 2016. And you can imagine everything is different from then on. Um, and that was all because Eric Joyce decided not to have one more drink on that night in February 2012. Or indeed, even if he hadn't decided to sober up, if he had gone for the drink, but somebody had been stood next to him who would, was able to stop his arm just in time. Yeah, It would absolutely. have been a bit of a fuss, a bit of a scandal, but it wouldn't have triggered a resignation, by-election, yeah. selection. And I think the thing that makes the initial setup of that chapter to me quite appealing is firstly that Ed Miliband wasn't doing huge amounts of stuff to reform the Labour Party. So it's quite believable that if there wasn't that trigger those reforms wouldn't have happened in a way that trying to make a similar counterfactual out of events in the 1990s, it would be far harder because Tony Blair and New Labour were so determined to change so many things that if you come up with some sequence of events by which one thing doesn't happen, you think it's it would have happened anyway. Um, the other thing that I really like about it, again, is the leap from, on the one hand, somebody deciding to go and have an extra drink through all the way through to Brexit not happening. That I mean, one of my chapters in one of the earlier volumes was about one of the votes on the 1832 Great Reform Act, when that was going through Parliament. There was one key vote that only passed by one. And yep. so it's a, in a way, it's an obvious counterfactual to write about how, what if the vote had gone the other way. But I don't think my chapter was quite in the same league as the, the Joyce one, because <laughs> Of course, if a vote on a bit of major bit of legislation passes by one, it's easy to imagine a world in which it failed by one. I think the genius of, of the Joyce chapter is, is the extension yeah. from one drink too many through to Brexit. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's in many ways, it's the classic counterfactual. It's a very, very minor change, something happening um, that really didn't seem important at the time. And actually, is also, I think the important thing is it's quite plausible. Joyce could absolutely have decided not to have had one more drink that night, or as you say, might have had a drink anyway, but just not got into a fight. It's not something that yeah, happens regularly. Um, and then you can trace quite plausibly all the things through um, that, that happened differently. Uh, I mean, you, I guess the, the the weakness of it is you could argue that Corbyn would have won in 2015, even on the old system. And actually, our um, author for that chapter, who did a very good job, I think, mm. addresses that and tries to explain why he thinks it might not have happened. Um, so, but I mean, that is a, that is a sort of challenge you could put to the chapter. And I but think so, the other challenge is uh, unknown about just how good a leader Yvette Cooper yeah, would have true. been, or indeed may yet be. I guess it's possible yeah. that as with some of the counterfactuals in your earlier volumes, <laughs> history has sometimes panned out that, you know, Prime Minister Boris and other things that never happened is uh, was one of the titles that maybe has aged slightly less well. But but in terms of Yvette Cooper, I think you know, one of the reasons Corbyn won that leadership election was because of the rules. But another major reason was all of his rivals just ran really underwhelming campaigns. And I remember watching one of the televised, I think it was at Union Hustings, but one of the Hustings during that Labour leadership election, uh, partly out of curiosity of Brown Corbyn, thinking, well, why is this person doing so well? But the thing that really struck me wasn't the, how good Corbyn's performance was, it was how bad everyone else was. And I thought, well, yeah, I mean, if I was a Labour member, I'd have been quite tempted <laughs> at least briefly, to vote for Corbyn after that hustings, because you just see how poor... And so maybe Yvette Cooper would have been a more effective campaigner for the Remain cause in the referendum. It's certainly a very attempting, easy conclusion to draw. But her one sort of real stab at political leadership, she didn't, you know, she didn't excel at at all. Yeah, I think the impression was she was beginning to get rather better towards the end of the leadership campaign, wasn't she? Um, but I think you're right, she wasn't didn't fight a very uh, effective leadership campaign. Um, but I think, you know, people change in response to circumstances. Mm. And we have seen she has been one of the more effective Labour opposition figures, uh, I think, in the House of Commons in the last few years, um, certainly often better than the the, the Labour front bench. Yeah. Although so I think was, that's a very different task, isn't it? I mean, this is nothing to do with counterfactuals. If you yeah. just think about people who've excelled as being opposition shadow spokespeople or select committee members or select committee chairs, I don't think there's a particularly good correlation between that and being a good political leader. Robin Cook is perhaps the classic example, immensely effective as a shadow spokesperson, variable as a minister in government. Um, I think his record has a particularly positive sheen to it because of his opposition to the war in Iraq. Mm -hmm. But yeah. if you look at the way he tried to force through electronic voting at a time where there was no case for it, the technology was untested, etc. You know, had it not been for the Iraq, his him getting the big question of the Iraq war right, and obviously he deserves significant credit for that, but had it not been for that, I think a lot of the rest of his ministerial career would therefore not be overshadowed by that, get more attention and looks, you know, I mean, that was just, it was the worst example of a minister waking up one day saying, I'm going to ignore this, what the civil servants are telling me. I'm going to ignore the evidence that we've got. I just think this is a good thing to do. Um, yeah, fair enough. But I mean, just as um, she wasn't a particularly good leadership campaigner, I mean, Corbyn was quite a good leadership campaigner, but ended up as a terrible yeah. leader. So mm -hmm. uh, you can sort of, it cuts both ways, really. And oh, we'll yeah, never know. Absolutely. But they, you know, the, the whole point of counterfactuals is speculation. Exactly. They, they trigger fun conversations 
emotions like yeah. this. And I guess the, the key thing that we don't know about history, because it only runs once, is how resilient history is. Um, and that it's, you know, we've sort of touched on a few of the other factors that might have pulled history back to roughly the same course of events. And in terms of Brexit, you could certainly argue that a referendum was pretty likely one way or another. And there were multiple different scenarios under which a referendum might have happened. And although you can quite easily trace a sequence of events by which the one that we did have in the year that we had it may not have occurred, it's a much bigger ask to come up with a con convincing explanation as to why there would never have been one. Um, yes, that's right. Actually, I'll, I'll, inevitably, quite a lot of our chapters in this book um, dealt with Brexit. Um, I don't think any of them argued that there wasn't or put forward the case that there wasn't going to be a referendum. It was all about whether it had been different people fighting the referendum um, on either the Conservative or the Labour side or different circumstances or even then actually quite a few of them were after the referendum and then you went through all the various options about Theresa May being able to get her Brexit deal through at the House of Commons. You remember the whole uh, whole series of um, votes in the Commons in 2018, 2019 um, and there were lots of opportunities you could say there that things might tend to differently but I mean I think what we try to do um, in all of these books is to constrain the counterfactuals they have to be plausible readers have to be prepared to suspend their disbelief and think that yes this could have happened so yeah there were not um, we didn't try to I don't think there are any chapters that said you know Blair didn't become Labour leader or didn't try to reform the Labour Party in the 90s in the way that he did I don't think we had any chapters that said there weren't going to be a referendum at all at least not in this book um, and even one of the chapters that did say, well, we had the referendum and remain one by a small majority, then went on to, to describe how the Euro, the, uh, the Brexiteers wouldn't be happy with that and would continue agitating for a second referendum, <laughs> as you can absolutely believe they would. And in the end, you know, everything politics ends up still being destabilised and there's a, there's a possibility of another referendum coming up. So I think those are all quite plausible outcomes. Um, and we tried to make sure that what authors did, and it's one of my jobs as an editor, uh, tried to make sure authors operated within those constraints um, and and you know produce plausible chapters. Yeah, if you look at Scotland, clearly losing a referendum doesn't make the losing side suddenly pack up and go away. And absolutely, I guess had <laughs> it's obviously very tempting and plausible to imagine a world in which the Remain campaign just won the referendum, given how close it was. But as you say, I mean the longer term impact is not necessarily one of everything turning out brilliantly, because if you have a Nigel Farage-led political party still arguing its case and using first, you know, first past the post Westminster general elections to do so, you can imagine a, a, you know, a very plausible sequence of events, which a bit like the SNP in Scotland ends up with a huge number of UKIP MPs in Parliament, and you, you yeah. don't get you don't get some sunny uplands of Notting Hill liberalism triumphing, <laughs> but the, the but, but but almost the exact opposite. I, yeah. And I guess the classic what if in that sense is the First World War. Yeah. Uh, the uh, assassination of the Archduke that triggered the First World War was both in itself a little bit like the Eric Joyce event. Um, just one thing that then triggered a much bigger sequence of events. But also the detailed history around the assassination of the Archduke is just full of mistakes and blunders 
and the assassins fail to assassinate the Archduke and then the Archduke's driver takes the wrong turn, which by bad luck brings the Archduke right in front of an assassin who was depressed and thinking that everyone, everything had gone wrong and the plot had failed. And so it's very easy to imagine a sequence of events in which the Archduke isn't killed that day. And in fact, we did. Um, it was a chapter in the second mm. volume in the series, President Gore and other things that never happened. What the Franz Ferdinand assassin had missed in 1914. And but. I think that really gets <laughs> into the heart of what we just don't know about history. You know, yeah. Should we look at all of the international strains in Europe and think the First World War was in some way inevitable? Or indeed to take a slightly bigger picture and look at the horrors of the first half of the 20th century and think horrors of some form were inevitable? Or do you look at the longer sweep from 1815 to the current day and actually look at that period of the early 20th century as an aberration that perhaps could have been avoided had things gone differently in the second decade um, of the last century? That Ben Elton's novel, Time and Time Again, I think is not it's a bit unsatisfactory as a novel in some ways, but it's very good at being thought-provoking around this very point of, in this case, it's about somebody travelling through time to try to alter history and all the different ways in which history can bounce back and still turn out in the way that you tried to stop it or even take a turn for the far worse. Yeah, right. I mean, in retrospect, I think I'm rather sorry we we did publish that chapter um, on what if Franz Ferdinand's assassin had missed, because I think just, you know, everything changes. You can't sort of keep a grip on it. Um, and I think I said the best chapters are where, uh, I mean, it was a plausible enough beginning. As you said, the assassination could perhaps well not have happened. But then the more you speculate about what happens afterwards, the more it gets out of control. What I liked about, I think, the best chapters that we have um, kind of limit their discussions to um, just quite narrow chain of circumstances because it's very mm. plausible. And then the, the widen out, they're, they're left to the reader's imagination. So, for example, one in this book, uh, Prime Minister Pretty, is what if um, Randolph Churchill had not died in 1895? It's a really good chapter. Mm. Uh, now, he was Winston Churchill's father. He was a um, leading Tory politician who died of, um, in 1895, what was suspected to be syphilis at the time, but actually is now thought to be probably a brain tumour. Um, but if he had lived, it's quite possible he would have gone on to be a Tory frontbencher and possibly prime minister, mm. and probably proven more effective prime minister than Balfour, who was the Tory prime minister before the great liberal landslide victory in 1906. Um, so the chapter doesn't argue that that would have stopped, but it would have. Um, he would have been a more effective Tory leader. He would have probably introduced some of the social reforms because he was that way inclined um, that the liberals later did. But the really intriguing thought that's left at the end is if he had stayed in the Commons, he almost certainly would then have gone to the Lords after stepping down as Prime Minister, which yeah. is what happened. And of course, there were no life peerages at the time. There were hereditary peerages. So Winston Churchill would never have um, actually entered the Commons. Um, and in any case, you can look at Churchill's, Winston Churchill's career and say a lot of it was trying to seek approval from his father. Um, and when his father died, he was actually liberated from that and went on to form his own path. And this is something that um, uh, academic historians have argued quite properly. Um, possibly Winston Churchill's entire career as a politician in the Commons might not have happened at all. He might have ended up going back into the army then you have the First World War. Well, what are his chances of surviving? So you can just imagine what would have happened to the whole of 20th century British history if Winston Churchill hadn't been around to be prime minister. Um, but our author sensibly doesn't go into that. He just kind of leaves it as a, a teaser for the um, 
for the readers. Yeah. But the, you know, within the constraints of the chapter, quite plausible that Churchill didn't die. You know, it's not inevitable that people get brain tumors. Um, and then the history of um, British politics at the end of the 19th, the beginning of the 20th centuries could have been rather significantly different. Yeah, and I think the fun thing about a chapter like that is that even if you disagree with some of its key premises, it, it's still and it, it it's like a good provocation, a good yeah, thought absolutely. starter. So uh, the bit that I'm least convinced about by that chapter uh, is the idea that if Churchill had ended up being a peer, that that would have massively changed his later political career. Uh, because in the early 20th century, it was still possible for peers to go on to become prime minister. And in a way, you could argue that his role as the, the difficult contrarian voice of the opposition, uh, you know, the, the way he really carved out his political reputation in the 30s in opposition to appeasement, that he could have done just as well, I would have thought, from from the House of Lords as from the House of Commons. Mm, it discuss. was a combination of oratory and journalism were what powered that, I think, his role in, in that period. And I don't, I'm not sure that being an MP rather, but now I might be wrong about that because I'm not a Churchill expert by any means, but I, I use that as an example of what is, what I find really enjoyable about chapters like that is they sort of make me want to go away and learn more about some you know, side related point because, in the end, the chapter can't be wrong. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, I mean, I would say that Salisbury was the last prime minister in the Lords, uh, and he stopped in, I think, 1900, 1901. Um, but then actually, having said that, and one of our other chapters... Alex Douglas Hume, you know, he, okay, he, yeah, he stood down as a, stood down. as a peer and became an MP, but also yeah. the one of the favourite, another of the favourite historical what-ifs is what if Lord Halifax had, say, become prime minister in 1940, which seems, you know, a, a reasonably plausible... Uh, well, in fact, what if, so. I was going to mention that because that is, that is again, That's another one of our chapters yeah. in the first one, Prime Minister Portillo, um, and a really well-written chapter. Again, one of my favourites, I think, looking back, said, what if Halifax had become Prime Minister in 1940? And it's kind of looking back from the 50s, thinking some contrarian historians have argued that that ridiculous adventurer, Winston Churchill, mm -hmm. could have become Prime Minister in 1940. What mm -hmm. a ludicrous mm -hmm. idea. No one could possibly think that would be mm -hmm. plausible. Here are all the reasons why it was obvious it was going to be Halifax. Yeah. Um, um, and yeah, a rather nicely written chapter that way. Yeah. The, the thing that I find most fascinating around those 1940 type what ifs is Neville Chamberlain, that he obviously and rightly is remembered for the huge failure of appeasement. But I think it's to his huge credit that at some of those, so for, for listeners who don't know, after you know, his appeasement policy fell apart disastrously, and he was ousted as prime minister, <clears throat> that wasn't the end of his political career. He was still a leading figure in the Conservative Party for a short period of time. Um, and even if I remember rightly in government. And so he was one of the key political players in that moment of crisis in 1940. Um, and after having been ousted as prime minister, he was a key backer of Churchill at a couple of moments that you yes. sort of think, you know, one of the what ifs is what if Neville Chamberlain had been a more bitter and petulant person <laughs> and having been ousted and replaced by Churchill, if he had then set about trying to undermine his successor in a way that other ex-prime ministers have done. Mm -hmm. 
and what that might have done at that moment of crisis as to whether Britain would have then sued for peace or not. So there's I, that's what I love about these these sorts yeah. of chapters is they spin off all sorts of other thoughts. Um, we've mentioned a couple of chapters from this book. Is there, in fairness to all the other authors, is there a, maybe should we go for a third chapter that you particularly <laughs> like from this book? Obviously acknowledging that you love all of your authors equally. <laughs> I do, absolutely. And and many of them are uh, very good. Actually, one of the ones I really liked, though I think it is possibly one of the less plausible ones, is one by David Boyle, who many of your uh, listeners will know, which is uh, called Goodbye, Mr. Chips. What if the News Chronicle had not shut in 1960? And the News Chronicle was a major liberal supporting uh, broadsheet paper and was shut down. I mean, it was making losses and it was shut down rather abruptly, even though the, the then liberal leadership um, tried to put together a trust to um, provide finance for it in the same way that the Guardian's run by a trust um, and taken over by the Daily Mail. And basically that was the end of the, the kind of liberal, the main liberal supporting paper. And David argues that if um, the trust plan had been uh, able to be successful, then there would have been a, a major voice for the Liberal Party and liberalism in general throughout the 60s and the sort of start of the counter-revolution. And the, it's fair enough, you know, it's a period when people began to question authority much more um, freely than they had done before. Um, so David reckons that perhaps that would have, uh, the paper would have given a voice to that um, political sort of tide of political opinion, kind of incidentally actually helped the Liberal Party to more success than it had. But he was mainly arguing about the change in political culture and social culture even in the UK. And I think it is perhaps stretches the bounds of um, credibility slightly, but it's a really interesting one. He talks about the power of the press and the way in which journalism works uh, in the way that we don't have in most of the other chapters, which inevitably, because they're political counterfactuals, tend to be about elections and the House of Commons and, and so on. Um, I ought to mention also one that is written by an anonymous author. <clears throat> now, I know who it was, but I'm not going to tell you um, about what if Nick Clegg had resigned as Liberal Democrat leader in 2014. And the, um, as far as we know, he did think about seriously about resigning after the disastrous Euro election uh, and local election results in May 2014, or June 2014, I think, was, wasn't it? Um, I mean, we'd had four years of really bad local election results, but the Euro election results saw us reduced uh, to one MEP. Uh, and of course, Nick, being a former MEP himself, was particularly affected by that. So um, I think plausible enough that he could have stood down. Vince Cable then, in the, counter, in the counterfactual, Vince Cable takes over as leader, and that's plausible. I think there wasn't any other possible one. And then our author has Vince doing a much better job in standing up to Tories, demonstrating that Lib Dems are separate. Um, and uh, I think the party ends up saving about 30 seats in 25, 30 seats in the 2015 election. I think possibly you could argue that the damage had been really done by 2014 and there wasn't enough time for someone like Vince to be able to rescue the party by then. But, you know, he puts forward a plausible enough case. But, of course, I was particularly touched by the idea that our author has me entering government as well in 2014. <laughs> well, as a special advisor. I mean, I was a special advisor to Chris Hune in the first two years of the uh, coalition government. But uh, our author has Vince appointed me as a special advisor in his uh, office uh, when he comes in as Lib Dem leader and deputy prime minister. Um, but that, we were going to accept we were going to accept the chapter anyway that was, um, and in fact that wasn't even in the first draft i think you put it into the, into the redraft <laughs> it, if you're a, a diehard lib dem activist that chapter is particularly fun to read for the varying levels of detailed knowledge the author or authors have about the party that there are some areas of party events that the 
that there's a lot of detailed knowledge shown about, but then other areas of party activity that are hugely glossed over, even where there are real incidents that you can see how they could be woven into that narrative. So if you're a diehard Lib Dem activist, you can have fun, therefore, trying to figure out from what is and isn't covered in the chapter who the <laughs> who may have been behind writing it. Uh, I'm not saying. <laughs> um, I think the other thing that that chapter, I guess it's weakness in a way, I think, of, of that chapter, is that Vince Cable was the person who introduced tuition fees. Yeah, he was the minister yeah. in charge of that. And I think there was certainly amongst Lib Dems uh, a little bit of, amongst some Lib Dems, a little bit of a sort of naivety about thinking that Vince would be a change. Uh, well, would be seen by the rest of the world as a significant yeah. change, when I think the big risk is that a, a change at that point to him would have been seen as just a party in crisis shuffling from one pro-coalition yep. minister to another pro-coalition minister, which illustrates a wider point about politics, which is, of course, the public tend to know less about politics than people inside politics sort of uh, give, you know, remember. And all, But they also, the public knows less, but remembers for longer. So yeah. the things that yeah. do get into the cut through to the public then end up being remembered for years and years and years afterwards and still shaping basic Sort of attitudes towards political parties and politicians. Yes, I think that's right, actually. And I think a more interesting counterfactual um, would have been if the uh, if the leadership of the coalition had not been devolved to the Quad, uh, Nick Clegg, uh, David Law was then replaced by Danny Alexander, um, David Cameron and George Osborne, where most of the key decisions were taken, but had been done through the coalition committee, which was the original intention. Mm. Now, that had seven ministers, I think, on each side, and include Vince Cable and Chris Hewn right from the beginning in the Lib Dem side. I think one could plausibly argue that that would have been that um, that would have been a vehicle for a more robust defense of Lib Dem interests and crucially doing things, making sure the coalition did things that were very visibly due to the Lib Dems, which I think was the main failure of the coalition. Yeah. We didn't make it obvious that we made a difference. I think, yeah, you can stretch a point and say maybe even the coalition committee would have made the difference or possibly it would have been just resulted in government decision making grinding to a halt because it obviously less um, yeah. less speedy than the Quad. But, you know, the Quad with, with particularly with Danny Alexander replacing David Laws, you had somebody who sometimes uh, sided with the Tories against Nick Clegg. That wasn't the best position to drive Lib Dem priorities yeah. through coalition. So, I mean, that could have made a difference, I think. And that would have been right from the beginning as well. So that could have made more of a difference to the way in which the Lib Dems were seen uh, operating within the coalition. I think if you forced or enticed me to write a what if chapter on the coalition, I would probably pick what if the party hadn't gone for the £10,000 income tax allowance as being its yeah. signature policy, because huge amounts of both political and literal capital went into delivering that policy. And so it was a very significant decision to make that a showpiece the showpiece policy that at every budget round for example that's what the Lib Dems went into really wanting from that budget round progress towards that and yet if you take a step back what we were basically saying in government was if you've got Lib Dems in there taxes will get cut and that's hard to really say and that's really different from what would happen if the Tories were and of course yeah. there is a difference in terms of being benefited most from that from from the tax cuts and so on but in terms of that broad brush political message to members of the public who don't follow politics that closely I think a minister a civil servant would describe it as a brave decision minister 
to try to make your distinctiveness from the Conservatives rests on being a type of tax cutter. Yeah, absolutely so if right. If we had picked something else, that's an interesting... If we had picked, let's say, a form of wealth tax as opposed to income tax cuts, even, even in that sense, a relatively small difference, so another bit from our range of fiscal policies, that you can imagine being able to make the argument, oh, look, the Lib Dems delivered the mansion tax, probably would have had more political impact. Although yes, I suspect I right. it all, the problems really all predate uh, the coalition in the sense that the problem was, you know, we had such a disparate coalition of support in the 2010 election that whatever we did in the hung parliament, a whole chunk of it was bound to fall by the wayside, that there was just not that enough glue that held together the different reasons people had for voting Lib Dem. I think that's probably right, though I think probably most of our support were from people who were more opposed to the Tories than to Labour as well. So I think going into coalition with the Tory government and then, as you say, being seen... And to looking be like doing... we liked it. Uh, absolutely. And, 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 then... and again, one should say for understandable reasons in the sense that yeah. it felt yeah. like in the economic <laughs> circumstances of the time, we had to be looking like this, a hung parliament could produce a stable government, that that was an important political objective to show. Unfortunately, what that meant, therefore, was a whole load of people thought, oh, you lot were against the Tories and now you're loving being in government with them. That's right. And delivering things that look like Tory uh, policies, as you say, cuts in income tax. Um, and on top of that, the tuition fees, debacle, which was just, uh, you know, signing a pledge to vote against any increase in tuition fees and then pushing it through and splitting three ways in the, in the process. Really yeah. disastrous. Well... I, I would I would be more tempted to end your sentence with the word irrelevant in that by the time the decision was made on what to do on tuition fees, the party support had already collapsed. And if you look at what happens to Lib Dem support in 2010, it surges <laughs> at the first TV debate. It sort of sags away during the election. But then the collapse is ongoing into coalition. So before NHS reforms, before tuition fees, before welfare changes, before all of the things that people subsequently said, this is the reason why I'm not going to vote Lib Dem, before any of those had happened, Lib Dem support had collapsed. So I think tuition fees became the way in which people expressed something. But by unless the, the electorate is stuffed full of time travellers, <laughs> the sequence of events is just wrong to be able to say it was NHS reforms or welfare or tuition fees because the collapse had happened first. That's a fair argument, though. Mm. Um, I'm not entirely sure I agree with that. I think tuition fees, because it had the broken promises um, aspect to it, mm. and it's the thing that people remember, and I think it's the thing that kept our support down. Mm. In the same way that the <clears throat> Labour government of the 70s, people remembered the winter of discontent for, for years, yeah. even decades afterwards, uh, Labour war in Iraq. That was kind of symbolic of everything that was wrong about the Labour government. So, I mean, maybe it would have been something else, but I think tuition right. fees became the symbol of what the Lib Dems did wrong in coalition. Yeah, although I think if you look at focus group research, it there is a big difference between the winter of discontent and tuition fees that, as you say, that image of the Labour Party from the late 70s lasted for a long time. And Deborah Mattinson's Talking to a Brick Wall book, which I always eulogise about, is a really good story of British politics in the 80s and 90s told through the eyes of focus groups therefore what people were actually thinking not what what politicians in Westminster were doing by contrast if you look at the market research into what people thought about the Lib Dems in say 2015 it was much more about don't really know what you lot did as opposed to 
oh my goodness, you are the horrible people who did tuition fees. So I, I think the two did play out very, very differently. But we're getting quite a long way Fair away enough. from counterfactual. So let's let's bring ourselves back. You've 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 cunningly slipped in a mention a couple of times about how there are other volumes in this series that people who enjoy reading Prime Minister Preeti could also then go on to binge read. And and you've mentioned a couple of chapters from those earlier volumes. But is, what's your what's your favourite chapter? If I dare ask, across all of the volumes, is there anything that really? <clears throat> Or, or one that we've not mentioned so far. Yeah, so I'll mention three, if, if you'll allow me to mention three, and yeah, I'd just like on. to quote from one of them, which is quite a nice one to end up. I mean, all of them illustrate, I said, the point, I guess the point we're trying to make in these books, I mean, a lot of it's about entertainment. Obviously, it's not, yeah, it's not in that sense, sort of, we don't have this great academic um, uh, sort of aim. But I think the point we're making is that most things that happen in history are not inevitable. It mm. can be easy looking back on things to say that, yeah, the Lib Dems would always have crashed in 2015 or the alliance would always have failed to break through in 1987. But actually, if you look at the chain of circumstances, um, I think in many occasions you can see just decisions slightly taken differently, uh, outcomes of elections that were very close, um, somebody dies rather than lives, somebody lives rather than dies. All these things are contingent. Um, and it's quite easy, I think, to look at uh, ways in which things could have happened differently. So one of the um, chapters from the first one, Prime Minister Portillo, was what if Tony Benn had beaten Dennis Healy to the deputy leadership of the Labour Party in 1981? Now, if you might remember, this was a period of, of very intense strife within the Labour Party. The left were trying to take over and, and being quite successful. But the period at which that start stopped, seemed to stop, was Dennis Healy from the right beating Tony Benn to the deputy leadership in 1981. Now, very, very close result. And our author there, Diane Hayter, who's now actually a, a Labour member of the House of Lords, argues that in fact, Tony Benn did beat Dennis Healy because it depended how you counted the result. Because at the time, they had the Electoral College for the deputy leadership. So MPs and MEPs in one block, trade unions and other party members in the, in the third one. Um, there were a lot of abstentions, particularly in the MPs uh, block, because quite a lot of MPs were under pressure from their constituency activists to vote for Tony Benn, but they couldn't, they hated him, basically, they were right-wingers, they didn't want to do that, so they couldn't quite bring themselves to vote for Healy, but at least they abstained. What the party decided to do was just to take those votes out completely and not put them into the result, which meant that everybody who voted for Healy in the MPs block, and that was the majority of them, their votes became slightly bigger as a result. But if you kept the abstentions in and just ended up reporting the final results as a Healy, Ben and abstentions, that reduced the amount of the value of MPs votes in the MPs block by just enough that Ben would have won. So, I mean, that was, I don't think the Labour Party had any rules for this. I mean, hopefully we would have done if it had been the Liberal Party doing this. Um, but I mean, such a such a crucial result. And then, of course, if, if the left wins that election, it looks like they're unstoppable. Um, it could have led to far more MPs defecting to the SDP. Um, everything again could have been different. And just on one really, really tiny thing, which could easily have gone the other way if someone had, you know, decided to interpret the rules differently. And there's a slightly similar, although smaller scale hook to the other chapter that I've contributed to one of the previous volumes, which is about the Clegg Hume. A very good chapter. Where the result was very, very close. And there was a batch of votes that were arrived too late through the post due to yes. a, a postal strike. And I think everyone agrees that the Hume campaign was catching up very rapidly during the later stage of that election. And so the, the story that I posit is that had those 
votes that arrived too late being counted that Hume would have won. And I think having spoken to different yeah. people very closely involved in the process, there's a bit of a range of views about whether that would have really been the case, whether those late votes were that heavily tilted Hume. But definitely there are people who were in the room yes. who saw envelopes being opened to believe that is the case. And the hook that I use is there had been a previous uh, Westminster target seat parliamentary selection where there had been a postal strike at disrupting votes. And in that, the returning officer had ruled, well, it's the rights of members that are paramount. If a member's vote is delayed due to no fault of the member, if they've posted it in time, we should still count the votes. And so I, I imagine a world in which one of the Hume campaign had known about this precedent and had therefore been able to quote the precedent and and get those get those votes counted. And of course, I think the significance of Hume beating Clegg is rather smaller than the significance of uh, Healy beating Ben. But in both cases, for each of the, yeah, the two parties, you can very easily tell a story about a very different subsequent history. The, the interesting thing about the Labour one, though, is there's a pattern I've noticed in the chapters across you know, the, the different volumes you've done, Duncan, where basically if you take a twist in the Labour Party's history in the 80s or 90s that means Labour does better in the short run, then things turn out worse for Labour in the long run. Yeah, because doing labour, labour doing better in the short run means you don't get new labour, or you get yeah. new labour happening later, or on water down track. And conversely, twists that make labour do worse in the short run end up in happier outcomes for yes. labour because they bring forward that scale of change in the Labour Party. And I think there's one of I can't remember which volume it is, but there's one of the chapters which is about the Darlington by-election, a a a by-election that Labour looked all set to lose in the early 1980s. But then due to the SDP candidate having a complete media meltdown during the campaign, Labour surprisingly holding it, which probably saved Michael Foote's leadership ahead yeah. of the 83 election. Yeah, had Labour lost that, had Foote been ousted, so had yeah. things gone worse for Labour, nonetheless, things might have ended up going better for Labour in the longer term because it would have precipitated more change and sooner. Yeah, and I should mention actually another chapter in Prime Minister Pretty, um, just to prove that our authors are are quite sensible people and don't get completely carried away with with wild-eyed flights of fantasy. Um, by Phil Cowley, what if Jeremy Corbyn had stood down in late 2017? Uh, as you remember, Corbyn was under a bit of pressure mm. to stand down. He was not proving a particularly effective leader. Um, uh, all this front bench were rebelling against him. It's not totally impossible he could have stood down. Um, and Phil traces through what would have happened, looks at the potential mm. replacements, and actually decides it probably wouldn't have made much difference. Labour would have lost really badly in 2019 anyway. Um, so I thought that was a kind of quite mm. a nice corrective to what most of the chapters do, which kind of posit quite possibly major changes arising from uh, from sort of minor decisions taken differently. Anyway, to mention, to go back to your uh, request to, to, yeah. to mention the favourite chapters, chapter. there's one I'd like to mention just because it's such so stylishly written. It's from Prime Minister Corbyn, which was the fourth book that we produced um, by Andy Mayer. Um, no, not one of my chapters. Oh. <laughs> what if? Well, we've already talked about yours. And in fact, we talked about both of yours. Good and excuse, I, I thought they were really good. Um, so this is what if Boris Johnson had become Prime Minister after the European referendum, so in 2016 rather than 2019. But the way he's written it is just brilliant. He's written it as a screenplay, basically, or perhaps for a television programme um, with kind of, you know, characters talking alternately. And he introduces relatives um, often offspring of characters from the thick of it and from prime 
Prime Minister, um, yes, Prime Minister. Um, and it's just very, very funny, as well as being actually quite smart about how things could have, um, could have turned out. Um, but the final chapter I want to mention is one from President Gore and Other Things Never Happened by David Hughes, um, a uh, liberal activist who very sadly died mm. a couple of years ago, I think. Yeah. What if the Liberals had formed the government in 1924? And the 23 election, right at the end of 23, was a critical stage in the collapse of the or disintegration of the Liberal Party in um, the first half of the 20th century. And you can easily envisage things happening differently. So the 23 election, Conservatives end up with 258, Labour went to 191, and the Liberal Party achieved 159. So a very thoroughly hung parliament. Um, and uh, um, in the end, what happened was that Asquith, the Liberal leader, decided to put the Labour Party into power with a kind of confidence and supply agreement. Um, and it was a totally disastrous decision. In practice, Labour used the opportunity to force people to choose between them and the Conservatives. Mm. So the Liberals simply became irrelevant and the party lost three quarters of its seats at the 24 election at the end of the year. But David posited a different position where the Liberals refused to put either the Conservatives or Labour in and end up forming the parliament themselves, uh, forming the government themselves. And I think it's it's quite legitimate that they could have done that. They had far more ministerial expertise within their ranks than the Labour Party had because most of them, they'd been in power sort of up till, um, in some cases, just a few years before. Um, and he has um, the, I'm uh, just going to quote for a bit, um, he writes, um, uh, one of the main difficulties Asquith faces is how to deal with Lloyd George, who had been the most recent Liberal Prime Minister, led a separate faction, but then reunited with Asquith to fight the 23 election. And we have a letter from Asquith to Lady Venetia Montague, his um, uh, his sort of possibly girlfriend. Um, I mean, Asquith did spend a lot of time writing to Venetia Stanley, who then... It's okay, uh, dead people Montague. can't sue for libel. <laughs> Indeed. Well, it's not quite clear whether well, they ever true. actually had an affair yeah. or not, but he certainly was very keen on her. And he says, 17th December 1923, letter from Asquith, Lady Venetia Montague. I thought I would let you know how events are moving apace. As you know, a major issue is the question of who shall lead if we are to form a government and whether the GOAT, Lloyd George, will accept second place. I felt that the issue could best be resolved if he and I could meet privately on a one-to-one -one basis. Consequently, we agreed to meet well away from the house and settled on an obscure restaurant, one run by one of Margot's more bohemian friends, Margot was his wife, in Islington. On arrival, he took only water and then immediately announced he would defer to my leadership of a new government on two conditions. Firstly, that I would stand down in his favour halfway through the parliament. And secondly, that in the meantime, he would be chancellor again, but with an expanded role responsible for all areas of domestic policy. Without overcommitting myself, I confirmed that I'm sure we could proceed on this basis. Slightly distastefully, he then suggested that we should publish a signed agreement to this effect, at which I demurred, citing the king's prerogative, etc. He then said, well, as long as I have your word, I ignored this impertinence, thank goodness Margot was not present, and replied, solid as a rock, like granite, he said, like granite, I confirmed. And um, those of the more politically educated amongst you will recognise the Granita Pact between uh, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown in the run-up to the 97, uh, no, run-up to the Labour leadership election, wasn't it, after John Smith had died, where basically Brown is Lloyd George and Blair is Asquith, and they met in this restaurant, it's in called Granita. Um, and the uh, chapter is very well written. I think it's a quite a plausible counterfactual, and it's just very funny. And I think that's, you know, that typical 
typifies what what the best not all of our chapters by any means manage to do that but a lot of them are they make you think they're plausible and they're stylishly written they actually they're a joy to read and i think that's what the best chapters in these books are about so that is a really good note on which to wrap up and um, just before we do if anyone has been enticed by your uh, description of the book to not only read read the Prime Minister Preeti volume, but then binge read all the other volumes and then wants to read even more. Is, is there anything else you would recommend if people have got a little bit of a bug for wanting to think and read about political history speculation? Yeah, well, we should mention it's published by Biteback, of course, and you can get it directly from the Biteback uh, website or from Amazon or Waterstones, the usual things. And I think they have some of the, uh, the older ones, mm-hmm. certainly the most recent one, Prime Minister Corbyn, they're still available. I think uh, Prime Minister Boris is probably the other ones are. links in the show notes to all the ones that are still on sale. The other ones are probably uh, available secondhand. Um, there are a few other books. Um, this has become sort of alternate history, has perhaps become, I think, probably a bit more popular in recent years. So, in fact, just um, right now, in fact, it's actually not due to be published until Thursday, um, a book called The Prime Ministers We Never Had, Success and Failure from Butler to Corbyn by Steve Richards has just come out, um, looking at different people who could have become prime ministers. And in fact, funnily enough, there was a book called The Prime Ministers Who Never Were, edited by Francis Beckett, published in 2012, which was did basically the same thing. But there are quite a few ch- uh, books around. Niall Ferguson edited one called Virtual History, Alternatives and Counterfactuals. Uh, Robert Cowley did two books, What If and More What If. Andrew Roberts did What Might Have Been. Um, and mostly those books are actually most, the bulk of the chapters are around military counterfactuals, military history, which is kind of understandable because you know, the outcome of battles and, and campaigns is often quite a chancy thing. But there are political counterfactuals in them. For example, in the Niall Ferguson one, you have a chapter on England without Cromwell. What if Charles I had avoided the Civil War? British Ireland, what if Home Rule had been enacted in 1912, as it almost was under the Liberal government? Um, and Camelot continued, what if John F. Kennedy had lived? Um, so there are, yeah, quite a few other chat, uh, books around. Um, but I said that the ones that we do are solely focused on political counterfactuals and therefore probably, I think, the ones we ought to recommend to your listeners. Excellent. Thank you so much for those recommendations and your time uh, on the show today. Listeners who wish to tweet their outrage at any of these highly implausible counterfactuals, all their praise for the amazing veracity of any of these counterfactuals, can find Duncan on Twitter at Duncan Brack, myself at Mark Pack, and this podcast at Bar Chart Podcast. So do look out in the show notes for links to uh, Duncan's volumes, the ones that are still on sale. Um, And if you like listening to the show, please do tell others about this podcast and give it a rating or review in your favourite podcast app. Thank you, everyone, for listening. (music) 